Hello and welcome to the April 6th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway, here with my colleague, Romeo Kokratsky. Later on, we'll also be having a guest, Joey Ayub, of the Fire These Times podcast. Now, Joey is an especially special guest because we have been partnering with him on his Fire These Times podcast on a series on Ukrainian topics. So far, there are two episodes, one with Leila Al-Shami and the other with Romeo. We'll be continuing the series in the future discussing it from, from various perspectives that you may not have heard before. But first, we'll be starting off with some news items, an update on the goings and comings of the war itself. Now we have, of course, good news and bad news. The good news is that the Russian threat has largely been driven out of most of northern Ukraine. The Kiev, Cherniv, and Sumy oblasts are seemingly cleared out of the enemy. They have retreated past the Belarusian border, and are being redeployed. Now, the downside of this is that we are now also discovering what they did while they were stationed in the north. Throughout nearly every city and town, there is evidence of horrific war crimes, massacres with hundreds of people, mass rape, mass looting. It is an awful, horrific thing to see. There's videos there's pictures coming in. There is mountains of evidence regarding the horrificness of these war crimes. And as we'll be discussing later, what we believe should qualify as a genocide. Further south, however, the war is being refocused and Russia is making gains. Kharkiv itself, there seems to be relief. The Ukrainian army is solidifying its gains around the city, and the area north of Kharkiv seems more or less under the control of Ukraine. However, the Donbass front is where Russia is shifting most of its men and material. They are pushing behind the Slovyansk front lines in hopes of essentially surrounding the entirety of the joint force operation area, the traditional front line throughout the last eight years of the war, which has some of Ukraine's most elite units and it's some of its most deeply entrenched defensive positions. If this area is surrounded, it will be a very major blow to Ukraine regarding thousands of soldiers trapped. So the ultimate game here is to try to prevent that from happening, to attack Russia on its flanks as it attempts to surround this area and beat back its assaults on the various towns that guard that are the rear guard. Meanwhile, in the south and southern portion of this is Mariupol, where Russia is taking more and more of the city. And though we do not have the amount of information that we have out of, say, Bucha and the other northern suburbs of Kiev, as well as the rest of the north, it can only be imagined that the crimes in Mariupol are even worse due to the size and heavy destruction of the city itself. Internationally, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has been uh, incredibly active in pushing for greater support for Ukraine. He has made an appearance in what seems to be nearly every single parliament on the European continent. Just yesterday, he uh, went out on the United Nations, where he actually said a couple of very interesting, or as the kids would say, based things. 
such as what is the point of it? The massacre, the genocide at Bucha has settled without a doubt the question of whether or not Russia is a fascist state. It is. It is a fascist state that is committing genocide. As a result, European powers are under more pressure than ever to divest themselves of Russia, to uh, impose energy embargoes, to sanction businesses working with Russia, though still they are dragging their feet. As for the United Nations, as Zelensky said during his appearance at the Security Council, what is the point of the organization if it cannot in the 21st century work to prevent violence, work to prevent genocide, work to prevent the aggression of one of its member states against another. If it is incapable of doing so, then it should be dissolved. That is the president's position. It is also my personal position. I do not see the point of an international organization that fails its charter in every conceivable way in every single conflict that we have witnessed since the organization's foundation. There have been some positive signs coming out of the European Commission in terms of imposing even greater sanctions uh, on Russia. There have been positive signs coming out of the United States in terms of providing Ukraine with at least partially some of the weapons that the Ukrainian government is requesting. Now that the war has largely changed to a offensive one instead of a defensive one. We now need to retake territory that the Russians um, have been occupying in the south. We need to uh, push the Russians out of encircling many of our cities in the south and the east of the country. We need, as the Ukrainian government has said, heavy armor. We need planes. We need anti-air defense systems. It seems like the United States is willing to help us at least with procuring um, more stocks of heavy armor, meaning tanks and armored fighting vehicles. Specifically, the United States is said to be um, quietly helping the Czech government transfer uh, Czech tanks or Czech Soviet made tanks to Ukraine. Um, for what? We don't know. We don't know what the cost is. This is all being done very hush-hush. Uh, however, um, multiple news sources, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, have reported that such a program is underway. So this is a signal that at least some portions of, of the Western world are, uh, after Bucha, taking these questions more seriously and are attempting to at least partially um, give us the tools uh, that we need to oppose the Russians. At the same time, as I said, the European Commission is pushing for a greater embargo. The Baltic countries have completely cut themselves off from Russian fossil fuel products. The European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, is also pushing forward a complete embargo of all Russian fossil fuel products from Europe. This is supported by the majority of EU member states, but opposed by two very significant and influential powers in the bloc, those being Germany and Hungary. Germany, of course, has its own peculiarities in this sphere, and I think it would take a, a different episode to simply focus on the German we've, aspect. We've talked about Nord Stream and all that before. I think we've made this clear if you listen to our back episodes that Germany is highly reliant on Russian fossil fuels, especially natural gas. So them cutting themselves off from it or going too far out of their way to wean themselves from it, it even in the midst of everything right now, seems unlikely. And as for Hungary, Orban, that is the prime Victor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary. Well, but Victor Orban, the uh, recently reelected in a 
free but not necessarily fair election, we'll say. In his victory speech, he basically declared his victory over a list of his enemies from the international left to the local left uh, to George Soros to Zelensky. He credited his victory as being won over Zelensky himself. He is a declared enemy of Ukraine, whereas before he had simply, well, danced around the topic of talking about the Hungarian minority in Ukraine and the need to protect their language rights, even though their language rights have since been protected. They have, in the name of this, block Ukrainian NATO membership steps, not the whole thing. The whole thing was never on the table, but at least steps to that end. Uh, various EU, EU association type events he has blocked. And now he's made it very explicit that Zelensky is his enemy, which he defeated in the election. So them, uh, so this, the, the state of Hungary blocking uh, Ukraine's anything positive is completely expected and now much more explicit. The Hungarian government has very close ties to the Putinist regime in Moscow. Incredibly close ties. Uh, it is a very heavily infiltrated government. However, again, on that note, following the uh, election in Hungary, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has actually submitted to Hungary a notice uh, that may, that will launch an investigation into Hungary's democratic status. And if that investigation determines, as it should because Hungary is not fully democratic, that Hungary is not meeting its obligations as an EU member, as a democracy, then Hungary will be sanctioned or sorry, not sanctioned, censured by the European Union. This may cut it off from funding. This may reduce its uh, weight in voting blocks and and lessen its influence over EU policy as a whole. So um, all of this combined with the push for embargo is a positive sign. Is this positive sign strong enough and coming fast enough to help Ukraine now? Probably not. But at the very least, it does show that Europe and the United States seem to finally, finally be waking up to the threat posed by the Putinist regime. And one other detail there is that the EU has tried to do some kind of censure against Orban before, but this was largely blocked by his ally within the bloc, uh, Poland. Poland has had similar issues of less than democratic measures that have run afoul of EU standards, so they have mutually protected each other from any kind of sanction or censure. Now, however, Poland is perhaps the leader in Europe against the Russian threat, so they may not take Hungary's pro-Putin, perhaps even enemy state status uh, as lightly as they, as they have in the past. The geopolitics of it, the security threat of it may, may perhaps, we don't know yet, be more important than Poland's protection of its various illiberal tendencies. We'll find out. Meanwhile, things are working as they were. Ukraine is attempting to obtain as much financial and economic support as it can from the various global financial institutions. Though, historically, being enthralled to said global financial institutions has not led states in a good place at the moment, we don't have much of a choice because you need money to run an army as Russia is very harshly learning. There are estimations that Russia has spent or has committed itself to spending already over half a trillion dollars in the month plus or so of the war. Ukraine has taken 
I think I saw an estimate that is also about half a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure damage and costs associated with the conflict. The Ukrainian government is basically pressing on every single lever available in order to gain Ukraine as much support as possible. Zelensky even made an appearance at the Grammys to also call for greater support for Ukraine. The Ukrainian government is is expending basically every diplomatic and cultural and every single effort to to try and shore up our defenses and and make us more capable of better resisting uh, the Russian assault. In our next segment, where we'll be talking with Joey Ayub, we'll be discussing a topic which has unfortunately entered the lexicon of Ukraine and Ukraine watchers and its people, genocide. So what is genocide? There are various laws about it. The international law is quite complicated. There are many statutes. It has gone through many cases, such in the case of former Yugoslavia throughout Africa. But generally speaking, it is leaning on the Convention of the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which was created in the aftermath of the Second World War and the Holocaust, and it states, In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, through the acts of killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, there have been many things throughout the 20th century and before that would have fit this definition. Some have received the legal recognition of such, others have not. And I think it's important to look at some of these examples of leading up to the recognition of it being a genocide. And I think in this case, Rwanda really sticks out to me. In that afterwards, it is widely regarded as a genocide. You'll not find very many people who will deny it. But during the time, uh, various politicians, especially the U.S. State Department, very, very much went out of its way to not call it that. Because to call it that would mean having to act on it. So at one point, a reporter asked the State Department in regarding, uh, regarding Rwanda, how many acts of genocide does it take to make a genocide? To which the State Department representative had no answer. Because the answer is obvious. Any, really. There's no such thing as an act of genocide. There's only details within a broader genocide. Now, we believe that the actions that the Russian army did within Bucha and the other northern territories have recently been liberated constitute acts of genocide. And as such, it's already fitting the definition of, of a genocide more generally. So what we have here are the acts, which we've already described. Mass rape, mass massacres. If we look at Mariupol, uh, people are being forcibly transferred from the territory of Ukraine to the territory of Russia. We have not had much time to get into that specifically, but that is happening. They are going through relocation camps and being forcibly placed into the various regions of Russia. This includes children. They're going through what the Russians euphemistically call, quote unquote, filtration camps. The filter here is to determine uh, these Ukrainian citizens, quote unquote, loyalty to Russia. Because again, Russia believes 
All of this is Russia and not Ukraine. Uh, in a bit, you'll see exactly what we mean by that and what the Russians mean by that in their own words. These filtration camps, however, no matter how euphemistically they may be named, are quite simply concentration camps. They are places where you put citizens of another country of a different ethnicity and then determine what to do with them. Based on what we've seen the Russian military do already, there is pretty much only one faith that we can assume for those citizens that do not pass Russia's quote unquote loyalty tests. The horrors that we've already witnessed at Bucha are, as Ukraine's prosecutor general um, Irina Vendiktova has said, the tip of the iceberg. We are looking at these scenes likely to be repeated and, in fact, have been repeated. We just haven't been able to go and document it yet um, across basically the entire country. So we have our acts of genocide. But the other half of this is intent. Now, is this meant to be genocidal or is this merely a very brutally prosecuted war? Well, we have a few. Uh, public documents by the Russian government, which again, we believe constitute the intent of committing genocide. So in Putin's speech at the beginning of the war, he made uh, various ways of explaining that Ukraine is not a real country and needs to be reabsorbed into Russia. We believed it was quite explicit. The rest of the world seems not to have picked up on it, though. Uh, but more recently, uh, there was a piece in Ria Novosti which is one of Russia's largest state media outlets. It is very tightly controlled. If something is in there, it's because the Russian government wants it to be there. And it's not even considered too wild as far as Russian propaganda is concerned. It is basically in the mainstream. It is not, uh, say, one of the far extreme Russian Orthodox publications, for example. And in this, it lays out a very specific case that, well, Romeo was the one who translated for NV, so maybe you can explain it in more detail. Let me sum it up. It's fascist. I don't mean that in the Godwin sense of anything you criticize or any conversation you'll have on the internet will event eventually lead to fascism in however many posts. No, it is quite literally a genocidal fascist manifesto that uses fascist rhetoric, fascist logic, uh, and fascist values to do nothing less than to justify the genocide that is the physical murder and elimination of the greater part of the Ukrainian people. Uh, it calls for the destruction of the Ukrainian nation, the destruction of the Ukrainian culture, the elimination of the Ukrainian language. There is absolutely Nothing in this document that does not in some way serve the cause of justifying the acts that we have seen committed in Bucha and countless other places across Ukraine. As Putin said in his speech, as Anthony mentioned, seemed to be then pretty explicit what Russia had planned for Ukraine. And with this piece, it is unignorably clear what Russia has planned for Ukraine. And that is nothing less than the extermination of Ukraine. According to this article's logic, if you can call it that, all Ukrainian are Nazis. Is it because we have a Nazi party in power? The article itself admits we do not. 
Is it because we have a popular fear leading the Ukrainians into some kind of ethnic murdering uh, frenzy? Again, the article admits we do not because we have Nazi laws. Again, the article admits that Ukraine does not. The article does not define what makes Ukraine Nazis. However, it does imply that the very act of Ukrainian independence, the very act of Ukrainian resistance to Russian rule is what makes us Nazis. That is not the ideology of fascism, not the acts of fascism, not the intents of fascism, the values of fascism, because Russia has those intents. Russia has those values. No, the only thing that makes us Nazis is the fact that we have the temerity, the audacity to claim that we are not Russian. And this means we need to be exterminated. And whoever is left re-educated for at minimum one generation until they have forgotten that the name Ukraine even exists. And again, I have not exaggerated a word of that. That is all directly sourced from this article. Again, this was a top story published in a mainstream leading Russian newspaper. And contained within this, I'd say, is not only the language of intent, but also a plan, which, first of all, uh, defined the entirety of the Ukrainian armed forces, anyone who aids the Ukrainian armed forces which considering the size of the volunteer movement is a considerable portion of the country, anyone who communicates in their favor, anyone who supports them in any way as Nazis to be uh, exterminated. It then goes on to say that the rest of the population will require significant denazification through re-education camps because they have been brainwashed. And also uh, carving up Ukraine into a series of Russian puppet vassal states that are uh, essentially in imperial viceroyalties that will then rule through Russia's will and enact policies that might even be too extreme for Russia itself. Leaving, he said something about the Catholic region of Western Ukraine as a Ukrainian rump state that will be forcibly neutral, can be invaded at any time if it has any aims of going beyond that, which again, the rest of the country either exterminated or subjugated. This is very explicit. It is a plan. It is intent, a plan, and as we discussed before, actual physical acts that we have already seen. Now, we're going to be speaking to Joey about this because he is uh, very familiar with many such activities around the world, but particularly in the case of Syria. Uh, so he has a good idea of what this game plan may look like. So, Joey, I'd just like to introduce you. So, hello. Welcome to the podcast. You're our first call-in guest. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Joey, I would like to ask you uh, just, just a broad way to begin this. How watching Syria for all these years... Mm -hmm. um, do you see, have you seen similar language out of Russia about this? Have you seen similar buildups of the dehumanization or is that, or is that more of a new development for Russia to be so explicit in its aims? I guess what I would want to know is how similar is the language that Russia 
um, that, it, that Russia is now using against Ukraine, how similar is it to the language that the Assadists use to justify um, their own genocidal acts? And what kind yeah. of parallels can you draw there? There are quite a lot of similarities. One of the slogans of Bashar Assad's regimes, and particularly its Shabiha, as we call them, and Shabiha um, has a, the same roots as the word for ghost in Arabic. And long story short, you might call them as just like pro-government, uh, you know, thugs and militias, etc. Um, though that slogan is what they would uh, spray paint essentially in Arabic, obviously outside of cities that they were besieging. Uh, we saw this numerous times, by my own record, at the very least a dozen times, as in a dozen different cities. And it's something that ended up becoming, it's also the title of a book uh, by Sam Derer, uh, Asada We Burn the Country. Um, that slogan, Asada We Burn the Country, I've seen it sort of being reproduced within Russian discourse for quite some time now. Obviously, often when it comes to Ukraine, but even further back, I remember reading one of Peter Pomerantsev's books, which I should say, actually, he is going to be one of the guests on that Ukraine series that we mentioned on the Fire These Times. And he mentions this sort of, I can only describe it as a very deep cynicism. You know, it's that whole everything is possible or nothing is true and everything is possible, essentially like. There is no way of knowing what is true. There is no way of knowing what is false. Therefore, any and all of the above could be true. Therefore, stop thinking about it because you will never know what the truth is. And even more cynical is a worldview that I can only call essentially like Russia or we burn the world. In Syria, it's very specific to Syria. Um, in the past, it also included parts of Lebanon, where I am from. But for most of the Ba'athist regime's uh, history, it has been Syria-focused, obviously, the Syrian part, the Syrian regime. With Russia, there are certain similarities, but obviously the history is different. Um, Syria was never kind of like an imperialist power, although it tried to do a mini version of this in Lebanon, as I mentioned, but it wasn't really the same thing. Whereas Russia obviously has this very long history. This sense of being of victimhood and the description, the how I've seen many Russian supporters of Putin describe themselves either as victims, usually of the Americans, of the world, of NATO, of Europe, and those are often used interchangeably. Um, and this the the way that they would be describing Ukrainians, including with that slur term that I won't repeat here. Um, there are some similarities between this and how the Assad regime and its supporters have been describing other Syrians. What changes is the vocabulary, because sometimes I would hear those same Russians call Ukrainians a so-called brotherly nations, a brotherly nation. So at the very least, acknowledging that there is such a thing as Ukrainian. Other times, not even that, obviously, uh, referring back to that slur word that I mentioned before. Um, in Syria, it's, it's not necessarily like you're not Syrian or you're not Arab or you're not Kurdish or what have you. It's you're, you're simply not worthy of life. It's, there's a German term for it, which I don't remember what it is actually. 
but obviously from the Nazi period. In Syria, it's kind of that. So there are some similarities, some similarities, and there are some differences. But I honestly think the differences are not that important, if you see what I mean. And they tend to be kind of superficial, like the vocabulary might change and so on. But the intention is is pretty similar. It's just semantics, right? Yeah. It, at the end of the day, it's mass murder of a group of people that refuses to submit to an authoritarian yoke. Basically, yeah. Yeah, I and the, the justifications for said extermination really don't matter in the long run. They don't matter. Um, no, the, and the and actions that speak for themselves. And the justifications change a lot. Now, one thing I've noticed, um, especially, especially in Western discourse, I don't know how, pref- uh, how, um, how, co- how common it is within internal Syrian or Lebanese discourse, the idea of all the enemies of the Assad regime being, by definition, terrorists, mm-hmm. uh, terrorist head choppers mm-hmm. is one thing that I've, referred, I've heard them as. Just in immediate, if you are fighting against this state, then definitionally, that means that you are a terrorist. Now, we're also seeing that in, I'm seeing a very clear reflection of that in Ukraine with the Nazi example. Mm-hmm. If you are fighting with against Russia, you are by definition, a Nazi. Um, so this very broad-reaching, um, taking a type of enemy which most people would agree is a bad thing, terrorists are bad, Nazis are bad, and labeling your enemy it definitionally makes it so definitionally you're allowed to kill them, you're allowed to do essentially whatever you want to them because they are uh, the easiest target available. Now, do you see this? Um, do you see this dehumanization as being now? How common? And I kind of want to get into this into the Western perspectives as well. Uh, how how do you think about the idea of Westerners jumping in on this labeling as Nazis as terrorists? Why do you think that is? Why do you they buy so quickly into this framing, almost gleefully in a way? It seems. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of things. One, uh, the first part, like, yes, I do see similarities between uh, acidists essentially calling everyone who's not an acidist a terrorist and how um, apologists of the Putin regime call everyone who isn't an apologist of the Putin regime Nazi. I see similarities, and I think this is one of the points, and maybe that links to the second uh, part of the question, which is, this is what confuses a lot of people. Um, they think, or a lot of people think, I think, that if a, a term is being used, let's say Putin using the term Nazi, therefore that must mean that there is some kind of justification for it. In the case of Syria, if Assad and his supporters are using the term terrorist, that means that there must be at least some kind of justification for it. And at the very least, what that creates is a sort of distancing. Uh, from people who may otherwise be interested in, let's say, finding out what's happening in Syria, if you're sort of worried that you may start associating yourself with terrorists, and especially at the time, 2014, 15, 16, there was obviously ISIS um, and the attacks in Western cities, you don't sort of want that uh, association. And it would be very easy because by then, by 2016, the propaganda was so um, 
significant that most people who aren't Syrians or who weren't, you know, following Syria may not know the difference between ISIS or a jihadi group or an Islamist group or a nationalist group or just some random rebels. Uh, you know, they wouldn't know the difference because, well, they, most, most of those speak Arabic. They kind of look the same, uh, all with beards. Uh, they have, this, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it doesn't matter within that discourse um, that you're calling a state that is run or that is led by a Jewish person uh, a Nazi state. Just as it doesn't really matter, and maybe this is a bit anecdotally, but I know this from various people, not just myself, that I have personally been called many times an Al-Qaeda apologist or a jihadi or what have you. And I'm an atheist from a Christian background who had a private Catholic education. These things don't matter. As in the fact that they are not accurate isn't, doesn't stop them from, from you know, spreading like, like wildfire, so to speak. Um, sorry, remind me the second part. And I got lost in my own thoughts. You kind of answered it already. So we're asking, we're asking um, why Westerners may buy into this framing so quickly. I think oh, okay. you answered that pretty well. Uh, let me add something. Yes. Let me add something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as to why um, many Westerners, and unfortunately not just Westerners, uh, but let's focus on them for now, um, are using this very easy, very easy rhetoric is because I think alternatively, I mean, there are many reasons, and so this isn't the perfect answer, but one of, one of the reasons is that not adopting this, this um, let's say, narrative would require you to start thinking about a part of the world that previously you just did not want to think about. It is much easier to accept. And we've seen this from people, even people who have called themselves like opposed to Putin or what have you. There are, there are various... Uh, shades of how one can oppose Putin. You can oppose it rhetorically, but then not care and not do anything. Or you can oppose uh, the, the regime and demand that action being done to actually stop it. So, you know, there are different shades of this. Those who tend to say, you know, that they don't support Putin, but, or they oppose Putin, but, I think that's actually most people who would be skeptical, let's say. And I'm kind of using generous terms, but I shouldn't probably. But whatever. Um, it's much easier to believe a certain narrative than to accept that it's much more complicated than that. Than to accept that if you don't know the history of the Baltics, of Eastern Europe, of basically all of post-Soviet space outside of Russia, and to be frank, within Russia as well, obviously Chechnya comes to mind and other places. If you don't want to do all of this pretty complicated, although these days, honestly, with the internet, it is not that complicated. Uh, information is as easy as it has always been, uh, as, sorry, as it has ever been, I mean. But if you don't want to do this effort, it is much easier to sort of accept the, is, is a much more established framework of how the world works. You know, there's America on one side, there's Russia on the other side, some messiness in between, but that's roughly it. And maybe there's China as a third pole. And, you know, you don't like America, therefore you're going to like Russia. Most of the time, honestly, it doesn't get more complicated than this with, with horrific uh, consequences. But yeah. Yeah. Um, in one of our podcast episodes, almost immediately before this phase of the war started, 
we kind of compared a lot of the framing to boiling everything down to Iraq. And in this case, um, uh, at the time, Americans bought into very simplistic framing of there's, they are Shia, they are Sunnis, and they are Kurds, and that's all you need to know about Iraq, and that they all hate each other and will fight each other for eternity. Mm. So these very, when people do not know about these regions very much, it's very tempting to collapse everything within these very simplistic frameworks. And then not only that, they want there to be an internal conflict so that they can like bite in on. Uh, there has to be uh, some tribal fight going on. And since both of these tribes are equally untrustworthy, equally bad, then therefore we don't have to care about it because it's all just so um, mixed up that we don't have to care about deciding what is actually true and what is not. So in the case of Ukraine, that obviously boils down to, uh, you know, Ukrainian speakers versus Russian speakers, which is an include in almost entirely illusory conflict in Syria. It came down to the government versus the jihadis. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, you're accused of being no Al Qaeda both of the both of us here are minorities one way or another i'm jewish uh, romeo is half south asian and we're both leftists and now we are white supremacist nazis according to some that's more of an aside yeah so uh, romeo did had had another question for you mm-hmm. yeah i actually just wanted to to it's a question more like uh, <laughs> an observation that i i was wondering that if um if you also share uh and that is so one of the big aspects um, that, like Anthony said earlier, uh, when we were launching um, into the previous ac- segment was this definition of genocide. And as I mentioned, like uh, Zelensky went on the UN and basically said the UN is worthless. It needs to take action to kick Russia out of the UN or it needs to dissolve because it can't. Fulfill its purpose. Um, and as someone who has watched the Syrian side for so long, um, how how accurate do you think that that belief is that there is no point in a UN? There is no point in pretending that there are things such as international norms or international laws, um, because I feel from from the Syrian perspective, considering their struggle has been so ignored and marginalized and um, lied about mm-hmm. that they they likely have share the same opinion. Of course, I mean, it's not just Syrians, right? A lot of people around the world would have very similar grievances. I would say, so I'm, I'm, I tend to be a very, okay, let me put it this way. The Syrian experience, and I'm not Syrian, as I said, I'm from Lebanon, but you know, they're my neighbors and I know a lot of Syrians and I've been involved for quite some time now, um, has sort of made me a very cautious person. And what that means is that I have no sympathy. I mean, I live in Geneva, but I have no sympathies towards the United Nations as a structure. My main worry, if there isn't one, is that all of the existing alternatives are just worse. And I see this playing, I have seen this played out in many, many ways. For example, I can give you a concrete example. The UN had a policy of sharing uh, hospital uh, geolocations to um, different parties in a conflict um, in the hope, essentially, 
that that means that you know the uh, whoever is doing the bombing would avoid those specific targets because it is assumed that you have these rules of war, and in within those rules of war, obviously the famous you know Geneva Conventions and what have you, you're not supposed to do X, Y, and Z. You're allowed to a certain extent of fighting and even killing enemy combatants. Now, what you do when you capture enemy combatants, there's a different set of laws, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What we saw in Syria is that those very geolocations that were shared with the U, uh, with, by Syrians first, so various Syrian, and I've spoken to a number of medical doctors who have also said the same thing uh, in Syria, I see, I mean. Um, so the Syrians would share it with the UN. The UN would share it with Russia. And Russia would use those very geolocations to bomb those hospitals. We saw this in many, many places. At this point, I think since we've since the bombing of that hospital in Mariupol, um, more people know of this this practice by by the Russian uh, government. But Syrians have been sort of talking about this since roughly, I'm gonna say, 2015 if not 20 well the intervention the invasion of syria by the russians started in 2015 but i think the targeting the bombing of hospitals intensified in 2016 like i might get the details wrong um so this so this would be sort of my answer to this um that being said the reason why uh so many governments today are still not using the term genocide we know this what we know why we, we know this even from the American example and how long it took them to use the word genocide uh, to refer to the Armenian genocide. We know that this, is, this had to do, for example, with their relationship with Turkey, Turkey being the second biggest member of NATO. Um, so we know that various governments, we know that that term essentially is politicized by governments, by, by regimes. We know that because it, it is a very specific legal term that demands not just morally, but like legally intervention. It demands some kind of intervention, either direct intervention, as we saw in Kosovo, or some kind of other intervention. It requires something to be done. And clearly they don't want that. And so because they don't want that, they, are, they will use all of the terms below that term, imagine a hierarchy of terms, which is problematic in and of itself because massacres are bad in and of already, even if they were not genocide. Um, you, you see what I mean? Yeah, like they I would avoid that. These crimes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like they would want to avoid that uh, and use massacres or mass murder or horrors or atrocities or other terms essentially because there are no legal... Um, connotations to calling something a massacre other than you know calling for accountability or investigations or whatnot which is important i mean you should do this anyway but it it mis it lacks the other aspect my um educational background is actually in international law and one of the i remember sitting down for my first like college class in international law is like international law 101 or whatever um whatever that course was called and we sat down and the teacher started like talking to us about the UN, the various conventions that um, make up the norms of international conduct and all, and all of this, all of this um, stuff. And she starts like talking about the like uh, what states are obliged to, to do in like this or this case. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this I actually uh, this uh, course I actually took in Ukraine. I got a Ukrainian um, 
international law education. And so, um, and at the time I'd only just moved from the United States and I was still, I was more Americanized, um, than that I am now. But what stood out to me was the immediate understanding that every single example that she cited, the United States had was violating at the moment had violated previously or had violated and then been and then avoided accountability for doing so. And the reason was, well, it's the United States, it's the global superpower. Um, now, there's a very basic legal theory, right, where that says if your laws do not apply to the most powerful members of your society, then you do not have laws. Um, I believe when you expand that to the concept of nation states, if your superpower is free to violate and ignore any sense of international norms or uh, conventions or whatever, whatever rules govern international conduct, then you do not have an international system. You don't have international law. What you do have is a basically a, a selective as um, I think this is a point. African countries make quite often what you do have is a selective tool of imperial enforcement against weaker nations and nothing else because the United States will never be held accountable for its crimes during the Iraq war. Uh, we can see that the world is seemingly unwilling to hold Russia account for its crimes in Ukraine, and it did not hold Russia to account for its crimes in Syria. It didn't even hold Assad to account for his crimes in Syria purely because they are a client state of Russia. It's not holding the Chinese to account for their crimes in Shishang and on and on and on. And at, at some point you have to ask, like, I know you said, well, you know, whatever um, replaces it will probably be worse, but what's it doing now? Mm -hmm. um, like, I, I, I honestly cannot, I, I can, I rack my head, you know, over and over, and I honestly cannot see any faint justification for the continued pretense that we have that there is some sort of international regulatory framework for any of these activities. Because over and over and over, the most egregious violations are ignored, essentially, while very usually minor economic disputes are treated as um, world ending threats. and have the full weight of the world's international bodies uh, upon themselves. Look at the Argentinian debt crisis mm -hmm. um, or uh, the Greek debt crisis or really any debt crisis. So it's, it's, it's such like, to me, I don't see anything positive. I think junking this idea entirely going back to simply the promotion of universal human values without referring to any legalese, any norms, because they don't exist in my, I, I don't, I don't see any evidence that they exist. I look at the history of the United Nations. I, I still don't see any evidence that they exist. What is, what is the point of it? Like, I, I think Romeo right now is asking you to defend the entire concept of liberal sorry. internationalism. <laughs> sorry. Yes. I, I don't mean to do that. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to do that. Uh, I, 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 I do. I would like you to, um, expand a little on, on your um, thought there that you think whatever will replace it will likely be worse. But I, I don't I, I, I'm I, I very want 
much want to make it clear, I am not accusing you, Troy Hube, of being a liberal internationalist. No, no, no. Not at no, all. No. This is not, not an ex- accusation I would make of you. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I didn't think that way. Question Woodrow Wilson, good or bad? <laughs> yeah. No, no, I didn't think that way either. Um, I guess I, I won't have a perfect answer to this because I don't think it's a perfect situation anyway. What I would say is this... Um, a cautious attitude that I have developed has only developed because of horrors in my own past, as in my, my family's past, the Lebanese Civil War, um, and also even horrors today in Syria. One thing that I do know from speaking with a lot of Syrian and working with a lot of Syrian human rights activists and others is that they are still relying on something to uphold, to be up, to be upholded, um, upheld. Sorry, they 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 rely on certain conventions. They rely on certain things because otherwise, doing anything against the Assad regime would literally be impossible. And right now, eleven years down the line, it still feels like, well, what 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 has it done? He's still there, and I don't have a good answer for that. I really don't. Um, I, I would say that in case of the Assad regime, nothing really has stopped it. But the, re- the reason why nothing has stopped it isn't the existence of international law or certain conventions or whatnot, but simply that the governments that would otherwise be tasked uh, with doing something about it have refused to do so. And at the same time, Governments that also, in theory, should be tasked with doing something about it, i.e. the Russians, were obviously preventing anything from being done with, with its veto at the UN. So there are lots of problems with the UN. I think that's, that's pretty obvious. The veto should go. There should be different uh, mechanisms. There should be different things. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, it's, it's very much not something that I've ever wanted to do. But I, I do live around a lot of lawyers. And so I do know that there are, you know, different um, ways of pushing the UN to do certain things and to do other things. And I would lastly say that there are, there are quite a lot of things that the UN does in terms of minority rights, in terms of disability rights, in terms of that sort of thing, which is definitely valuable. I've seen this in the UK, even for that matter. But anyway, I don't want to go too off topic. Um, I don't have a strong case defending the UN. My only case is... Uh, I I do think if the UN collapses tomorrow, which you know Russia would apparently be happy to do, I really think that we would be seeing more like what's happening now in Ukraine, maybe times ten. That's sort of my worry. I go, I go from everything with the assumption that it can be worse, and I think years of seeing this happening in Syria, but not just in Syria, sort of just everywhere. I've I've been studying quite intensively also not just the Holocaust, but also the Bosnian genocide. Whatever, whenever we think that it cannot get worse, I think we're wrong, essentially. And so that that would be my only real take on this, which isn't a, you know, particularly good one, to be honest. Um assuming things can always be worse is uh, in my experience a pretty safe assumption to make. Yeah. 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 And I I do think that it's notable that one way that Russia has tried to avoid responsibility for this is very early on, they just up and left the Council of Europe. Exactly. Um, they probably would have been uh, sanctioned or in some way 
but they basically said, uh, you're not firing us. We quit. So they definitely see these uh, internationalist bodies as having some kind of weight to them, at least in the name of uh, naming and shaming. Perhaps some of these countries that are more fence riders, such as you know India, Brazil, mm-hmm. would have a harder case to make um, about the relations with Russia if they, if these very exacting proclamations are made against Russia from an international perspective and not just from a this group of countries perspective. I also think just just to add to this, if that's okay. Um, it is also notable that Russia, when it goes to the UN, when it speaks to the media, when it does all of those things, they're giving very bad excuses for what they're doing. Uh, pretty lazy ones. Uh, Elliot Higgins and the other folks at Bellingcat have been documenting, documenting this for a long time. I have myself for that matter. They often use online conspiracy theories and they just copy paste them. They don't coordinate between them as in the various embassies, the various politicians, because they just don't care. They don't think it matters. But it it is notable, although trust me when I say that I don't think this is necessarily a good thing, but their bar is pretty low at this point. It is notable that they don't outright go to the UN and say, hey, uh, you know, we are fascist. We are about to get it to do a genocide, deal with it. You know, they don't do that. And I think it's bec- what worries me, and this is what I'm trying to maybe very badly um, express, is that something happens when a government, a totalitarian government, drops even the last pretenses. My worry actually right now is that we are seeing this in Ukraine. Uh, it's in the hundreds and it's in the thousands. I worry about what it happens when they make a decision, Putin or whoever's around him, although at this point it's basically only Putin and a few people around him, make the decision that, well, thousands isn't anything. Thousands doesn't count. It has to be tens of thousands. It has to be hundreds. It has to be millions. This is what I mean. It could get worse. This is what I mean. We haven't seen a Holocaust-like event since the Holocaust. Uh, we've seen, I, d- I don't want to say smaller versions because that just feels like demeaning them, but I, I think you know what I mean. We've seen Rwanda. We've seen uh, Bosnia. Uh, we've seen Syria. We've seen many, many, many other examples, of course, around the world. And Myanmar. Yeah, every genocide is unique in its own exactly. way. And comparing them is can, it can get real gross real quick, Absolutely. in my Absolutely. opinion. Uh, so I definitely don't want to do that. Uh, I would only say that I worry that whatever is happening now can always get worse. And this is a worry I have about most situations when I don't see, at least as far as I can tell, and I'm trying to be as, you know, as, as observant as I can, I don't see indications from the people most responsible for atrocities for the, the, the specific, so obviously I'm talking about the, the Russian regime here. I don't see any indications yet that they are about to stop. And as the longer I don't see it, the more worried I get. Um, and I'm not obviously not the only one to say this. Many people have been talking about this for a long time. Peter Pomerantsev, Masha Gessen, so many thinkers have been saying this for quite some time. I worry that to go back to the among the first few things I was saying, that this whole Assad that we burned the country, but Russian version, uh, Russia or we burned the world, 
I worry of this essentially being put into place and maybe it's already being put in, into place and we're all still seeing this thing happening relatively slowly, although at this point the pace is picking up. And yeah, we've seen many uh, Russian supporters of the of the Putin regime going on state TV and saying, well, it's not gonna it's not gonna stop in Ukraine, you know. Moldova would be next or Poland would be next or what have you. And I worry about this as well, in addition to what feels like being max, maxed out in my worries about Ukraine. But unfortunately, as I said, things can always get worse. You know, when you say like Russia or we burn the world, mm-hmm. Russia literally has nukes. Yeah. So <laughs> that is. Yeah, I, I, I mean, mean quite, it literally. quite frankly, it's, it, it is really terrifying. Um, to think that back against the wall, what the options will be. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the kind of the way I kind of comfort myself over this is, um, my very sincere, uh, assumption and hope that Russia's nuclear infrastructure is as corroded and corrupt as every other aspect of their country. Um, or that there are, but at there the are same time, people who have to also approve it after he approves it or something like this. There's a chain of command, and you always hope that one of them says, "No, this is too much." And that's what happened during during the Soviet exactly, Union, right? Exactly. Um, there, there is at least someone, even um, some low ranking guy, the guy who actually has to like give the order to the to for for the soldier to turn the key, that stepped back and said, "You know what? No, this is crazy." And I'm hoping that that is still the case. Um, but at the same time, the attitude that was there during the Soviet Union was nowhere near this nihilistic, um, like us or we will take the rest of the world with us. Attitude. That wasn't present in the Soviet Union. There was some that they had there. There was an ideology that included the, the continued existence of the human race. And just like in Syria, I don't, I don't see Assad's ideology like maintaining the continued existence of the Syrian people. Mm-hmm. He does not seem to care about that. No, he doesn't. And I don't think that Russia's current ideology, as as they this fascist ideology they expressed in this Rianovsky article, as them really caring if the rest, if if human civilization carries on, it really is. I don't know, one of the most terrifying things I've ever had to contemplate when you're talking to a person that is just just so nihilistic that they don't care. They will take you with them. That's the thing. It's the hollowed out shell. It's what is left of an ideology, which is not an ideology anymore, but what is left. The Soviet Union's ideology at the very least was relatively coherent at times, especially in terms of foreign policy. Not that I'm saying the foreign policy was particularly good most of the time. But there was some kind of ism that they were trying, or they were at least publicly, in terms of public face, trying to uphold or what have you. Uh, by the way, the man, the man we mentioned, his name is Stanislav Petrov. I was looking him up. And in 1983, that was the Soviet nuclear false alarm incident. And he's credited as having saved the world. And it's actually incredible that most of us have never heard of him. He died a few years ago in 2017. Um, he's one of those who could have pushed, but uh, decided not to. But anyway, um, what it's, I mean, I, this is my understanding, obviously limited, although I think it's a relatively coherent picture that after the fall of the Soviet Union, and especially after the 90s with the advent of Putin in 99, 
there wasn't much left of an ideology other than we have been betrayed. We have been betrayed by history. We have been betrayed by the Americans or we have been defeated or it's actually rarely defeated. It's, it's almost always the language of betrayed. Like the only reason the Soviet Union collapsed. The politics of grievance. Exactly. Like the only reason the Soviet Union collapsed isn't because there was anything fundamentally wrong with the Soviet Union, was, but actually because, you know, it, uh, Gorbachev wasn't harsh enough. You know, the, Putin himself has said this. In the early 90s, he said this. Um, so it, it, in many ways, it's not that complicated. That's sort of the extraordinary thing. You, you think of, you, you, you look at the interwar period, what we now call the interwar period in, in, in Germany specifically, and you look at all of those things that were building up to what we now obviously later know as Second World War and the Holocaust, and it's almost like, well, obviously this is what was going to happen. Uh, revengeism and and if we have been betrayed in the First World War. Hitler repeated this many times. You know, Versailles, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you tell yourself, well, how how didn't most or how didn't other big powers notice this? How didn't why didn't they stop this? Well, be, a lot of them tried to just appease it. We know this. We we literally call it appeasement. Like we know what it means, but at the time. Appeasement in the UK had a lot of supporters. At the time, um, the policy of non-interference by the Americans before Pearl Harbor obviously had a lot of supporters. We like, and obviously before um, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, they literally had a pact. We like to tell ourselves a story now that there was always in a nation that were going to stand up to the forces of evil that were Nazi Germany. But it could have turned out differently if, if, I don't know, if Hitler hadn't invaded the Soviet Union, you know, could have probably continued to invade the rest of Europe. You know, there's all of the, those what ifs that we could um, entertain here, which probably for a different episode. But my point is that just as it doesn't surprise us today, or it doesn't, um, let me put it this way, just as if we go through in the interwar period in Germany, and we look at A leading to B leading C leading uh, to D, E, F, G, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we starting in Russia? If we start with the fall of the Soviet Union, let's say, okay, that's A, maybe Putin coming in, that's B. And then at some point you're seeing something develop and progressively increase and becoming, going more and more to a point that really feels like it's a point of no return. One thing that I would say to people who are genuinely worried about escalation of the nuclear variety. I understand that worry. I mean, it's not fun. It's very scary. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But one thing that I would say is that if they take that fear and they translate it into, well, that means we should just stop arming the Ukrainians and just wait for all of this to go away. We have a lot of, and other than this being horrifically immoral for the obvious reason that I'm literally speaking to Ukrainians right now, other than that, which is pretty basic, I would hope, it's also a very bad policy, uh, just objectively thinking that you can just wish it away. The only thing right now that would stop Putin is if Putin dies. Like, I think we know this by now. Now... You know, maybe you don't want the Americans to bomb Moscow. Fine, I, I get this. And it's not going to happen. I just don't see this happening anyway. There's no talk of this whatsoever. They're not even using the word genocide when it comes to Bucha, as we just said. They're using the word massacre. They are themselves trying to, you know, 
not played both sides, obviously, because they're not on Russia's side, but they don't want to go full in. And the reason I'm saying this is that if you're worried about this, then we should actually do everything we can to make sure that the Ukrainians can defeat Russia in Ukraine. Like, if you don't want this to go elsewhere, if you're worried that it goes elsewhere, which is fair enough, you don't want it to go to Poland, fine, good. I mean, I don't want it either. I don't want it to be in Ukraine in the first place. And I don't want it to go to Poland either, obviously. But if you don't want that, then what you should be advocating for is that everything that can be done to make sure that the Ukrainians have everything that they need to fight the Russians, that's what we should be supporting. And I'm saying this as an anti-imperialist, anti-war, anti-what-have-you, which I've been since the age of like 14. I do not see any contradictions with this. And denying that reality, I think, just betrays a pretty horrific um, lack of understanding and lack of willingness to engage in the world. And at that point, what is, like, seriously, what is the... practical difference between that kind of cynicism and the cynicism that we're seeing basically being filmed by pro-Putin Russians filming themselves saying that we need to destroy Ukraine. It's not as explicit, but I think it can have as deadly consequences, if you see what I mean. Yeah. uh, Nihilism is the problem here. We're not going to solve it with more nihilism. Yeah. And uh, I I still think of Putin as as a Brinksman he thought that he could come into Ukraine and have the problem solved right away and the world would not react very strongly. So we have to prove time and time again that there will be a reaction. And if there will be, then he won't act. Yes. Um, My, my, my last question for you though um, is a bit more on a micro level Mm -hmm. because it's something that I've speaking to Ukrainians lately, uh, the feeling of uh, powerlessness involved the feeling of these people who are doing these horrible things to us will never get justice for it. And I've been following your work for a while, and especially in regards to the Lebanese civil war, you've spoken to how these different warlords, these war criminals who did horrible, horrible things throughout Lebanon, throughout the course of the civil war, now they have been pardoned. They are political leaders. They're business leaders. They are the government. There's no justice for them. They are the government. There is no justice whatsoever. And what I'm hearing is that there's, there won't be uh, justice for the genocideers who have attacked Ukraine. Um, there's not a great way to, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to overrun Russia and bring everyone to account. Mm-hmm. That is just not feasible considering the nuke question, of course. Mm-hmm. So we will be in a situation where there's all these war criminals out there. We will know their names. We will know what we will know what they did and we'll be left with this feeling of powerlessness that they got away with it. So just what I want to ask you on like a psychological level, like how do you deal with that? How do you process how do you process living in a world where these horrible things go unpunished and there's there's seemingly no justice? Um, I guess the short answer would be with great difficulty. Um I I think the question of a post is very interesting because we now have it's that thing where accumulated knowledge obviously doesn't necessarily translate into better policy but or politics but in theory it can and so i i work from the theory first 
I say, okay, it can be done because in theory, most things can be done by humans that have to do with humans, including the horrific stuff, as we're seeing literally right now. In Lebanon, as you mentioned, um, and I won't say too much about this. For those who want, I did an episode with New Lines magazine, uh, which I republished on the Fire These Times as well, which was a collaboration. Um, on, on that specific, on that exact question, uh, the post in post-war, um, a lot of it is applicable to other contexts, including uh, most notably or infamously, I suppose, Bosnia. And my worry, although it's not going to be the same in Russia, just because it's a very different dynamic and we don't have, for example, a sectarian element in the same way or what have you, and it's not a civil war in any meaningful sense of the term. If you accept that it's civil war, you're accepting that Ukrainians are Russians, which by default basically is, you know, Putin's line. So it's not a civil war, as unlike Lebanon and Bosnia, although in Bosnia, obviously, it was followed by a genocide. Um, actually, I would not describe Bosnia as a civil war. I would, I would, I would, but anyway, let's, let's digress a bit. Um, my worry is that we're seeing a lot of indications with Orban's uh, so-called victory, uh, with the same elections in Serbia, uh, as we're recording this, there's the upcoming elections in France. We still don't know how that's going to be with Le Pen kind of coming up in the polls. We'll see. I don't really care about polls for now. Um, we're seeing a lot of potential problems within the camp, in this case, Europe, the EU, that is most likely to do anything about Putin. And we're seeing cracks from within. And I'm really worried about those cracks from within. If, put, if uh, sorry, Trump was still president right now, I don't want, even want to imagine the sort of things that Putin could even go even further. I don't know. I, I'm not even imagining it for now. The Republicans might win in the midterms. Trump or someone like him might win again in the next elections. You have all of those different scenarios. And I don't, I don't want to be a doomsayer here or anything, but you have these scenarios that are pretty bad. And my worry is that not enough is being done at the moment to sort of insure us against those scenarios. And the reason why I say this is that most of the time, it's actually much more banal. And here I'm obviously evoking Hannah Arendt for the Darussalm agreement there as well, but whatever. That, you know, in Germany, which obviously is the country, which quote unquote should know better for obvious reasons, all of those debates about the energy crisis it, are happening because they don't, are happening in a context that doesn't see itself as part of history. They don't see themselves as, ima just imagine what this looks like in a history book in 40 years. That while a genocide was happening, Germany was debating fuel prices. It doesn't look good. And you would know that it doesn't look good if you were more self-conscious about your place in history. And I think the Germans, for all of them, what we usually say that, you know, they're more aware of their history than others, although honestly, usually that's just a very low bar when you compare them to the Brits or the French. Um, the, so I don't know if you see what I mean. Like my worry right now is that we're seeing a lot of different moves from within Europe to focus on Europe alone. America is a different case. We're seeing a lot of different moves to sort of try and appease. And I'm using that term not lightly. I am actually referring to the appeasement of the Second World War, well, before the Second World War, obviously. And I'm worried that we're seeing this in different ways, if not outright 
politics, so to speak, like openly defending Putin or what have you, although Marine Le Pen has done this. So if she wins the presidency of France, you will have this in France, as you are seeing this in Serbia and in Hungary. You will have one of the two major powers of the EU doing this now. So maybe you won't see this. Uh, in Germany, for example, I don't think you will see this, but you will see it economically. Uh, you will see it maybe culturally. You will see it in different ways. And this is what worries me as someone who primarily focuses, like my background is in, is in cultural studies. So that's primarily what I focus in. That's what worries me because that can and often does translate itself into more political repercussions. Um, so I guess I'll stop on that. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I see is how if, if Europe and other countries are willing to just move on from it that will isn't is often said about genocide uh it it, it affects people twice when it happens and then when, when it's, it's denied yeah. when it's when it's erased yeah. so if people are are too quick to erase what's happening in ukraine that will uh double down on the injustice that i that i talked about um we, we've gone rather long in the tooth so we'll we'll head out we'll we'll let you head out here but we'd like to very much thank you for for speaking to us. Uh, we'll of course be speaking to you more in the future. We'll, but thank you very much. And again, you for our listeners, you guys will be able to hear me and Joey um, in the Ukraine series in the Fire These Times, which we are currently producing. So keep an eye on the Fire These Times podcast. And you'll be able to um, hear us and hear our takes, and of course the takes from the. Um, various experts and um, perspectives that, that we will be um, talking with and gathering. So check that out. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Ukraine Without Hype, an independent production by me, Romeo Kokratsky, and my colleague, Anthony Bartaway. And again, a very special thanks to our guest, Joey Ayub, for joining us uh, for uh, this episode's discussion. As always, an enormous, enormous shout out and uh, our basic internal gratitude to all of our uh, patrons of any tier, but especially those who have pledged at tier two or above and to show our appreciation. We will, of course, um, thank each of you individually. Thank you so much, Will Stevens, Vic, Theo T. Bart, Stephen Greenberg, Sanjay Hinduja. Randy McNarlin, Rajesh, Rachel Haidu, Patricia Spurls, Patricia George, Gnome Hart, Mikey Whiplash, Melissa Koselko, Evgenia, Lisa G, Laura Lakari, Lori DeLeon, Kristen Swanland, Kevin Corpy, Justin Devendorf, Jacob, Had to Laugh, Grace Kraus, George, Found Gold, Eric Hanold, Dvora Gracer, Deborah Lee, Crystal Burns, Chris Walker, Carolyn Dominic Mitchell, Brianna Rhoda, Big Rob, Amaya King, and Abir. Thank you once again so, so much for supporting us and for making this podcast possible. And as always, Slava Ukraina!
Oh, you know. 